Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. So I want to start out today reminding you that there are many resources on wealthformula.com to complement your listening pleasure on this show. You know, there's uh, uh, downloads that'll help you to save taxes. By the way, in terms of saving taxes, you know, this week uh, we had a, a webinar. Uh, that was on how to save taxes legally. It was from Tim Gertz on uh, from Provision. And this is the kind of thing that if you get on my email list, you'll be aware of because this is a phenomenal free event. You know, five uh, legal ways to reduce your taxes from uh, one of the CPAs at Provision, which is Tom Wheelwright's group. You know, Robert Kiyosaki, tax advisor Tom Wheelwright, and it was done for us for free. So why are you not on my email list? How can you get on my email list? Well, just go to wealthformula.com and really sign up for anything, including my free book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, which is available on Amazon as the number one bestseller. However, you can also get a PDF version on my website. So, Let's turn to topics on today's show. Now, thousands of years ago, in the Roman times of Christ, you'd go to the local store and trade your ounce of gold, you know, maybe their coins or whatever, for a nice toga and a pair of sandals. You know, something worthy of wearing to the Colosseum, you know, for a good bloodbath, right? And today, an ounce of gold will buy you a pretty nice suit and a pair of shoes. Something at least worthy of, say, going to the theater. The point here is that even though, you know, you can't take gold right now itself to Neiman Marcus or wherever you shop, wherever it is, uh, it has a value. Gold is money, and it has been for centuries, which is a pretty darn good track record. Uh, you know, over the last several thousand years. I don't know of anything that has such a good track record over a period of time like that. And that's why gold bugs, as they are called, hang on to it like they do. After all, these days we have, you know, we have a different kind of currency. We have something called fiat currency, F-I-A-T currency, and that's not a fancy Italian car. Fiat currency is money that a government has declared legal tender, but it doesn't really have any intrinsic value. 
It's paper with some ink on it. It's not backed by anything, you know, except for the trust in the government that issues it. And they may try to fool you and and say, in God we trust, so that it actually becomes trust in a higher in a higher being. But in reality, it's just the trust in the government. When you think of it that way, right? You know, there's this this thing that we carry around called money, uh, and that it's really just based on faith and trust. It's kind of scary. I mean, after all, what gives our money value? I mean, it's nothing more than a collective agreement that it means something to everyone involved. Now, what if people started not believing in the currency anymore? Now, it's not that far-fetched. I mean, we've seen it happen in history multiple times, and it's usually the result of, uh, it's usually, at least in modern history, uh, the result of hyperinflation. We saw that in Weimar, Germany. You remember, you you know, you see images of World War II, or not World War II, World War I, and, you know, you get these images of people bringing in barrels of money to buy a loaf of bread, and that's Weimar, Germany. That was hyperinflation. You know, it, it was just a, a matter of devaluation of the currency. It didn't mean much anymore. You know, it's hard to have much faith in currency when it literally and figuratively isn't worth much. And that's why, you know, in cases of hyperinflation, the, uh, the, the faith in currency and fiat currency starts to wane. So why does hyperinflation occur? You know, I mean, in modern times, really, that is the primary reason for a fiat currency to lose um, or for people to lose faith in fiat currency. Well, it usually has to do with governments trying to pay off exorbitant debts. That's why usually hyperinflation occurs or any kind of significant inflation. In the case of Weimar Germany, it had to do, again, with ongoing debts of the First World War. Now, that's, again, you know, stuff from the past. So let's talk about today. And in the U.S., we have about a $20 trillion national debt. How are we going to get out of that? Well, you'd think, if you were listening to the Congress, that would be tax cuts. Now, listen, I love tax cuts, you know, especially the kind that they they, they want to do because it benefits me, frankly. So I, I like it. But let's be honest here, it's not going to get us out of a $20 trillion hole. That's just not going to happen. So in the meantime, like any debt, interest has to get paid, right? I mean, you have to pay your payments. I mean, even a credit card, you got to at least pay the interest payments on that. Otherwise, you're going to get sent to collections. You're defaulting. If you aren't in the case of the government, if you aren't generating enough tax revenue to pay the interest, what are your other options? Well, you could default on the payment, and that's uh, that's <laughs> that's been on the table lately because you see the you know you see these last minute you know debt ceiling debates in Congress. It's really awful. I mean, and we had a downgrading from Moody's a couple of years ago because of that. But frankly, that's probably just not going to happen. It's not a good idea for our sovereign credit rating and even the most ardent about our national debt and controlling that are uh, hopefully not going to let that happen because that would be a catastrophe. So if you aren't going to default 
on the interest payments and you aren't going to create enough tax revenue to pay the bills, what's left? Well, there's only one option. Make your debt worth less. Not worthless. Well, pretty much worthless. But the, the goal is to make your debt worth less. Even though it might have the same numerical value, it has less overall total value. Now, how do you do that? Inflation, right? Inflation erodes debt. If you dilute the buying power of your currency, in other words, say you just, you know, just print more money, then it's a lot less painful to pay it back, right? It's like, uh, it's basically uh, cheating because what you're doing is you're borrowing money that's worth a certain amount uh, and uh, and then later on you're you're printing more money so that the inherent value of that money goes down so you're paying the same numeric amount but it's actually not worth as much. It's It seems sort of unfair but that's just the way it works. Now if you don't think that we do this on purpose, why do you think that the Federal Reserve even in good times, has a target inflation of 2%. That's, that's historically what the target's always been. Again, over time, if the value of the currency is less than at the time the money is borrowed, then that's a pretty darn good deal for the borrower. And as you know, in our country, that's just what we are. We're, we're a nation of borrow, borrowers. That's what we do. And by the way, why do you think I love using debt in real estate so much? Well, think of what I just told you about the erosion of debt, right? It's like printing your own money. And with $20 trillion of debt to pay off the U.S. government, with a relatively stagnant U.S. economy, do you think that the powers that be might want to see inflation tick up just a little bit? Now, let's be clear. In an economy like ours, you know, it's the biggest economy in the world. It's, uh, it's still a type of reserve currency you know, hyperinflation seen in Weimar Germany or, you know, more recently Latin America or African countries, it's just, you know, it's not likely, you know, it just doesn't really, it would be very difficult to see that happening, but it certainly can pick up quite a bit. You know, as recent as, as 1980, inflation was, was up at uh, just under 15%. Now, can you imagine losing almost 15% of your buying power year over year, without a significant increase in income? Ouch. But stuff like that happens in the world of fiat currency. The U.S. dollar, listen, it is the best of a bunch of bad choices in currency, but ultimately it has no intrinsic value. And you can print as much as you want. Say what you will about cryptocurrency. You know, a lot of you know that, um, you know, I'm playing around with the cryptocurrency thing. I think it's kind of fun. The cryptocurrency gets a bad rap. But you know what? There's a finite number of Bitcoin. There's only 21 million that'll ever exist. And the only way it increases its value is through demand. You can't just print it, right? You can't do that. No wonder the gold bugs are so passionate. You know, they are very, very passionate. You know, they're, uh, gold is finite. And it has, you know, been real money for literally thousands of years. Owning it makes them sleep better at night. Now, if this is all foreign to you, it's probably a good idea for you to stay tuned to this podcast. 
because I have got a great guest. It is Dana Samuelson, who is a real expert on gold, and he's from the American Gold Exchange. So when we come back, Dana's going to tell you all about gold, everything you need to know, and you can decide for yourself if you need to own it. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Dana, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Hi, Buck. It's great to be with you. So, you know, I'm excited that you're on the show today. You know, a lot of people who you know talk about gold in our little community, our tribe, so to speak, uh, speak very highly of you and and everything you're doing, and and you as a uh, you know your character and your business and everything. So this is really good. I wanted to get somebody who is really an authority on gold. So one of the first things I want to talk about is that I think you know there is a question mark in a lot of people's minds. You know what exactly is gold? I mean, historically speaking, when did gold become something of value, and why? Well, first of all, thanks for your kind comments. Uh... Uh, but getting to your question, you know, gold has been uh, a means of exchange as a currency, for lack of a better term, back since ancient times. And it's got several properties that make it attractive as a means of exchange. Number one, it's scarce. Number two, it's durable. Number three, it's malleable, which makes it uh, usable so it can be reformed. And as a currency in the world since ancient times, all the way until uh, paper money started to become prevalent in, after 1913, is because of its ratio uh, that it's found in the ground. So you've got gold, silver, and copper as the main currencies. Uh, and their re- relative value is gold is about 20 times scarcer than silver as it's found in the ground. And silver is about uh, 100 times scarcer than copper as it's found in the ground. Now, that excludes modern technology that allows you know, ex- extraction from places it could never be extracted before. But since ancient times, these are the ratios. And that's why copper... Uh, pennies are worth a penny, a silver dollar is worth a dollar, and an old U.S. gold coin that was currency uh, with about an ounce in it was worth $20 because those were their traditional ratios that they were found in the ground since ancient times. Right. I think Aristotle had some uh, points about what makes for good currency, right? And, and is that, some of, the, is that the, some of the same points that you're talking about? Yes. People have to recognize it as a store of value. And gold has always had that allure. Part of it is the yellow color. In ancient times, when pharaohs were buried, they were buried with gold as part of their treasures. You all remember King Tut's golden mask, I believe? Right. So it's been wealth since ancient times. Yeah. And that's carried all the way through 
you know, to modern times. When the U.S. Mint was established in 1793, the ratios I just described were used to create the penny, the silver dollar, and the 10 and $20 gold coins. And they were in direct proportion to each other and relative to the values of gold, silver, and copper in the world at that time. Yeah. Well, even if you go back even further, right, I and mean, there's the, the, I say this all the time, if you look back at uh, the Roman times of Christ, gold, you know, would buy you a nice toga, a, a nice pair of sandals, and today an ounce of, you know, gold, that same ounce of gold will buy you a nice suit and a pair of shoes, right? So it has <laughs> some certain store of value that has, uh, you couldn't say the same thing for the U.S. dollar or any other sort of um, paper currency or certainly any uh, fiat currency. Now, so why, you know, in this day and age, you know, obviously there's all these things that you just mentioned uh, as, you know, for in terms of gold as a currency. But, you know, gold bugs are very, very passionate about this stuff. And I, I don't consider myself a gold bug. I see its value. I see gold as money. But what are some of the reasons that people are so passionate about gold in general today? Well, with the advent of fiat money and the printing of money in excess of gold to back it, you know, we've had bouts of inflation. Uh, Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971, specifically so the U.S. could print more paper money than there were uh, ounces of gold to back the amount of money in circulation. And, you know, my mentor, James Blanchard, who helped to re-legalize private ownership of gold in 1974, was probably one of the original and fiercest gold bugs for the reason uh, that gold has always been valuable. He understood that this was going to dilute the value of paper money and that, um, Gold was a way to protect yourself against that dilution. That's probably the, the most fundamental reason uh, gold bugs love gold. It's a, it's a way of ind- to have independent money outside of the financial system, almost in the same way that Bitcoin has taken off. It's a way to have a means of exchange outside of traditional financial systems. Well, and, and gold and, bugs are independent people. Yeah, right. And as as are the Bitcoin people, right? The 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 libertarians. There's a there's a very interesting parallel between those, and we potentially can learn some things from history because, as you mentioned, there was a time uh, in 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 history in the U.S. where it was illegal to own gold. Can you talk a little bit about that banning of gold, and then how ultimately it became legal to own gold again, and why? all this happened? Yes, well, it's, history has a funny way of repeating itself. So there's some parallels that are quite interesting. You know, gold was money. When the U.S. Mint started making currency, there was no paper money in 1793. There were coins, gold, silver, and copper coins. And that was the tradition until about the 1870s and 80s when paper money started to become used as a means of exchange. Uh, The Federal Reserve was established in 1913, which allowed for the national printing of currency. And we had a big financial explosion of money in the 20s, the Roaring Twenties, which led to the financial crisis of 1929, stock speculation. Many people are familiar with that. I don't need to repeat all that. What happened was there was a destabilizing event, which was the 
stock market crash of 1929 and the ensuing depression that went into the beginning of the 30s. And when that happened, paper money wasn't really fully established as a means of currency uh, in a way that it was trusted like gold was. So there was gold hoarding. And to prevent gold hoarding and to prevent specifically gold from leaving the United States, Roosevelt had to do something drastic to stabilize the monetary situation. So that led to his act of 1933, a presidential act, which prohibited United States citizens from trading gold outside of the country because foreign governments were asking for gold in payment in lieu of paper currency, and gold was going out of the United States. In 1934, uh, the Gold Reserve Act was established, which outlawed most private ownership of gold, forcing individuals to sell it to the Treasury, after which it was stored at the United States Bullion Depository at Fort Knox. This also allowed the gold price to go up from the fixed price it had been fixed at for 100 years at $20.57 an ounce to over $35 an ounce. In essence, it allowed inflation to occur, which Roosevelt needed to help stimulate the economy. And we've gone through a very similar situation in the last 10 years with the financial crisis that we had and the printing of money to create inflation, which still hasn't kicked in at this point in time. So... Gold was outlawed to stabilize the financial system, to allow inflation to be fostered through the printing of more money, and it stayed that way until the 1970s when Nixon took us off the gold standard and allowed more money to be printed. But that, at that point in time, gold was not a currency anymore. Gold went out of the world's currency systems after the United States outlawed gold ownership in 1933. You know, gold coins were minted in Switzerland, in Great Britain, Russia. All the gold currency that existed was no longer continued after about 1935 for the most part because we took it out of the money. Silver stayed in the currency up until 1964 in the U.S. and other countries into the early 70s. By 1977, 78, silver coins were gone worldwide as well. So now we're entirely on a fiat money system. Uh, and in that environment... Um, you know, gold as a as a commodity being re-legalized to own uh, is okay because it it's not a currency anymore. It's now just a commodity. So okay, so the idea was that the reason, actually, to clear this up for myself, I often wonder how was it possible to make it legal? How was it constitutional uh, to make? it illegal to own gold uh, in, in that uh, Roosevelt period. And and it was, if I'm understanding you correctly, it was because gold was deemed sort of a currency, a competing currency. And for that reason, it was allowed. Is that right? Well, correct. People didn't want the paper money. They wanted the gold. So gold was being hoarded, and gold was also being demanded uh, by other countries in international trade payments. Right. So to stabilize the flow of gold outside, from inside to outside of the United States, Roosevelt had to do something drastic. First, by presidential decree yeah. in, in uh, April of 1933, disallowing the United States citizens to trade gold outside of the United States, and then by Congressional Act in 1934, outlawing the private ownership of gold completely. 
I don't think that gold confiscation is going to happen again for the very reason that at the time it happened in 1933 and 34 was because it was currency. Today, it's valued as a monetary instrument, but it's not uh, ubiquitous like currency is everywhere. So if they want to confiscate gold today, maybe 5 or 10% of the public actually holds physical gold. Yeah, I think I, I think that if they, we get to a situation where they would want to confiscate gold, the problems are going to be so big elsewhere <laughs> that this will be a small problem. Yeah, and then you know the other thing is I think that there would be significant uh, backlash from uh, you know from from the gold uh, people who are supporters of gold and, and and that sort of thing these days that I don't think maybe they had that back in the day. That seems like an incredible amount of presidential power, too, and I'm not sure that you really could get away with that these days just to prevent people from owning gold. But that said, we call it confiscation, but at the time, they still were reimbursed for that gold. It's not like they just got it taken away from them. They just were given what was considered fair market price. Uh, Now, of course, when Roosevelt, after confiscation, they, they knocked up the price a little bit. <laughs> so, yeah, in so, 1933, yeah. gold was still $20.57 yeah. an ounce. By 1935, it was $35 an ounce. Yeah, yeah, there you go. It's almost 75% increase, which accommodated for the demand that gold had at that time. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So, you know, in terms of the process of getting that that legalized, I know your, your mentor was involved with that. What did that look like? Was that difficult at that point, or was it you know, just because we were no longer on any kind of gold standard, it, it wasn't uh, there wasn't a lot of pushback. Well, the government didn't have a vested interest in protecting that particular uh, niche item anymore, and Jim was just uh, incredibly good at marshalling public opinion around the topic, saying, "Well, if it's not money anymore, we're not backing the dollar with it anymore. Why? What does it matter? Why can't we own it?" And he actually hired a biplane to buzz Nixon's Richard Nixon's second inauguration with a banner behind it that said legalize gold <laughs> in 1972. Uh, unfortunately, the plane only got within a couple miles of the inauguration ceremony before fighter jets shoot it away. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing Jim did to drum up public support. And he had uh, – he developed this newsletter uh, based on the National Committee for Monetary Reform. Uh, which was the vehicle that he used to enlighten people to why gold was still good to own, specifically because the government is going to print more money than there's gold to back it, causing inflation. He was exactly right. When gold was re-legalized, you know, it was because he helped to get the public to lobby Congress, and specifically Gerald Ford, who was president in 1974, to sign the act that re-legalized private ownership of gold. The government didn't think it was as necessary at that time <laughs> for the gold uh, uh, illegalization. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting to me. What's interesting to me about this uh, this time in history with the, you know, with the uh, making gold illegal and then making it, you know, legalizing it, there, there's, uh, you, you mentioned it before, there, the history has a way of repeating itself, right? And, and now if you look at what's going on specifically in the, in the cryptocurrency market, you see some of those things evolving. You know, I think there's there's definitely some concern from the government's 
about the role, particularly right now, of, of Bitcoin, because Bitcoin's purpose, only purpose, is, is as a currency. And uh, when you have a competing currency that you can't control, it starts to ring uh, historical echoes of gold. Do you, do you see that parallel? Yes, I do, and I can see the allure of Bitcoin. Um, because of that, it allows people to trade something of value that's, rec- that's become recognized uh, outside of traditional financial systems. Now, part of it is for you know, proper um, trading, and some of it's for illegal trading, of course. You know, sure. It's a way to get around government restrictions or to trade uh, you know, black market items, let's put it that way. But I see a, a, a parallel uh, the problem I see with something like Bitcoin is that, you know, Bitcoin is the one that's the most popular now, but competitors are coming up very quickly. And the blockchain technology that underlies all these currencies is, is uh, repl- it's replicable. So it can be, you know, while there might be 10 or 20 blockchain currencies now, there's going to be 100 in the future, which will dilute them all in the same way that paper money can be diluted. So I think it'll, it'll end up coming back to gold at some point in time because gold cannot be replicated in that manner. It's hard to find. Yeah. That's why governments are buying gold, to back their currencies, like Russia. And China has been on a gold-buying spree the last 10 years. One of the guys I follow in the precious metals area is a guy by the name of Marin, Marin Katusa. And uh, Marin sent a... Uh, uh, an email out a, a few months ago I thought was really interesting where he thought, uh, you know, there, there certainly are speculators, right, in the junior mining sector that he felt like uh, he was noticing, he was noticing that the cryptocurrency uh, market was actually uh, potentially competing with some of those, some of that money uh, that would ordinarily go in junior mining which I, I thought was pretty fascinating because on the surface you would think, well, gosh, these things are completely different. You know, one has been around for centuries is physical in nature. The other has been around for about 10 years and, you know, uh, lives it, it lives in the ether. But it's a really fascinating thing. Well, there's, there actually is a natural progression if you think about it. There's, there's gold, physical gold for gold's sake. And mining shares, the companies that the stocks of the companies that mine the gold were always a paper proxy for physical gold because they were technically backed by gold, by the amount of ounces they had in reserve, their ability to produce it. But more importantly, it was a way to paper trade gold, which physical trading is it's more, admittedly, a bit more cumbersome. Sure. You have to ship it. You have to store it. So the mining shares were always a paper proxy for gold, physical gold. With the advent of um, ETFs, they began to dilute in physical metals like SLV or GLD, precious metals ETFs. They began to dilute the allure of mining shares. And if you look at how mining shares performed when gold took off, sure, they did great, but the ETFs undermined them because they gave people an additional paper proxy in gold to the mining shares. And now the blockchain currencies like Bitcoin are doing the same thing again. You know, when you, speaking of ETFs, you know, GLD and SLV and all these things, you know, so so gold people, gold purists and people like even, you know, Jim Rickards, I know, are very much against the idea of owning ETFs in lieu of physical gold. 
What is the argument there? Well, uh, physical gold is real portable wealth. And the golden rule is those who own the gold make the rules. So the reason to have physical gold is because it is true and portable wealth. A hundred ounces of physical gold is about the size of a paperback novel, weighs about eight pounds, and today is worth about $130,000. So if you had eight, seven or eight paperback novels in size of gold, you'd have a million dollars in gold. Mm. Okay, if you're buying an ETF that's backed by gold, either fully or partially, you're, you're only on it on paper, and you don't have the physical gold in your hands. So if there's a real crisis, a real currency crisis, you know, you're going to exchange that ETF value for paper currency to trade it, where if you really want to move money around, if you don't have the physical gold, you're at the mercy of the ETF to be actually backed the way they're supposed to be backed and the warehouse that it has it. Yeah. So that's why, you know, it's good to own. If you want to have gold and trade it conveniently, you can do it on paper through mining shares or through ETFs. But if you truly want to have physical uh, protection of wealth, physical gold is the way to do it. Right. Yeah. In recent years, you've, you know, we're seeing a lot of uh, geopolitical movements uh, with regard to gold. Uh, which I think is a is a, I think a pretty good argument for owning the physical stuff. You know, you you, you see, even Wall Street has been very anti gold for years, and with the argument that what is gold? I mean, what what is has no meaning really? That's their argument, right? But now all of a sudden, if you look at the the global what's going on globally, you've got China and Russia have been hoarding gold, physical gold, for several years now. What's going on with that? What do you think is going on with that? Well, the, the financial crisis of 2008 proved why gold is the world's uh, safest reserve currency. Uh, it, it's, it's the only real asset that isn't simultaneously someone else's liability. And with the explosion of debt that has occurred since the crisis started in 2008, I mean, the U.S. debt went from 8 or $9 trillion to $20 trillion, and it's going to go higher. And we're the world's reserve currency. We backed up the entire world's financial system. If you're outside of that and you're not trading in a dollar-denominated asset in, in another currency, your currency got hit. So Russia saw their currency get hit. I mean, currencies around the world got hit relative to the dollar. We enjoyed that special relationship because the dollar is the world's reserve currency. If you don't have that and you want to hedge against that, value changing – with with, with regard to your own currency, gold is the best hedge. And gold went from about four or $500 an ounce leading into the financial crisis. Uh, actually, it's a little higher than that. It's about 700 But that was um, as the housing crisis started. Um, gold went from about four or $500 an ounce to $1,900 an ounce, up four or five times in value, depending on where you start. It's the same thing it did in the early 70s. Gold went from $40 an ounce when Nixon took us off the gold standard to $200 an ounce by 1974. Then it fell about 45 50% to $110, $120. And then it took off to $850, went up about six more times in value. If we're in a parallel decade or a cyclical market, you know, gold went from four, from four or $500 to $1,900, up about four or five times in value. 
came down about 45 percent to 1050 and now it's moving higher again if you're a country like russia that is primarily dependent upon oil reserves but you're Reserves are not traded in your own currency. They're traded in dollars, and your currency loses value. Gold is a hedge. If you're an emerging major world power like China that wants its currency, the renminbi, to be on par with the dollar as a reserve currency, and your financial markets are not big enough or transparent enough to attract the trust of nations around the world, not quite yet, and you want to have backing to your currency, the best way to do that is to have gold. So the Chinese in particular have been buying gold at a record pace. I mean, they, they increased their stated reserves from about 1,100 tons you know, five or six years ago to over 1,600 tons two years ago. But you know, Jim Rickards estimates that they hold anywhere from 15,000 to 18,000 tons of gold now, I think, which would dwarf the U.S., which holds 8,000 tons of gold. So at some point in time, I think when the Chinese are ready to say, hey, we want the renminbi to trade on par with the dollar, oh, and guess what? We have a lot of gold to back it. Now, it doesn't mean it would be fully backed, but it could be partially backed as a way of telling international investors, you can trust the renminbi now because we have gold to back it. Just yeah. the oldest form of currency. Yeah, and it's it, it's interesting too because you 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 mentioned that at some point uh, they'll do that. There's there's already been some inching towards that, right? In the in, in the form of um, you know what's going on with some of the oil futures and the uh, you know the the yuan. Um, can you do, do you know what I'm talking about? The, with the right, going yeah. back what? on the Shanghai you, Exchange. You yeah, can, can you explain trade, that to being paid uh, the in audience? dollars for oil? You yeah. can be paid in gold. Right, so you can. That's a way here. I think um, you know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but effectively, I think the yuan has a little bit of a um, a little bit of a reputation problem, right? So to have oil being traded in yuan or gold back or, or yuan-based futures, in order to do that, they had to give it some legitimacy. And the way they gave it legitimacy was to say, uh, and oh yeah, by the way, you can trade in your yuans for gold. Exactly. And this is potentially explosive for gold. Now, if you think about how much yes. gold there is and how much oil there is that's traded, if they really want to, if international governments want to be paid in gold instead of uh, yuan or dollars, there's just not enough gold to go around. I mean, it, it will propel the gold price dramatically higher. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I'm saying it's it's potentially explosive. And it's another way of the Chinese to move towards getting the renminbi or the yuan accepted as a currency right? by offering an alternative outside of the U.S. dollar exchange right? as a medium of exchange for oil or other commodities. So it's another way for them to step into the, into the world marketplace with a viable alternative. But they're also one of the – I think they are, aren't they, the biggest user of oil uh, or at least are going to be very shortly uh, in the world – so if, if if that's the way they're buying it, uh, that makes a makes a big impact on the global. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. makes right. sense. Um, sure. You know, when you look at his historically in modern history, I think it's fair to say that one really useful metric to look at gold prices has been as a sort of anti-dollar. Do you think that that's still the way to look at it? I mean, in a very simplistic way. 
Yes, actually, you know, I've been in the business since 1980. I've been watching the gold price on a daily basis, almost minute by minute for over 25 years as part of running my own business. And gold tent trades primarily inversely to the dollar because it's priced in dollars. As, as the dollar gets stronger in value, gold gets weaker in price, and vice versa. As the dollar gets weaker in value, gold gets stronger in price. Now, this is in normal times. When we have exceptional times, you know, that relationship gets broken. But I can almost watch on a daily basis as the dollar gets stronger or weaker relative to the yen or the euro that gold is going to do just about the opposite thing. Yeah, and that's almost, really almost interesting. Directly. Right, and it's interesting because if you are of the belief that there will be some level of uh, increase in, in inflation uh, or some sort of maybe even a little bit of hyperinflation to a certain extent uh, because of the, the, the debt, because of the, you know, the, the lack of any sort of uh, tie to the petrodollar, all these things that are stabilizing forces for the dollar – then it stands to reason that you may want to have at least some portion of your uh, portfolio, at least your cash portfolio or reserves in gold. That's right. Gold is the perfect hedge against inflation or financial instability. And what the proportions that you just said, 5 to 10% are what almost any reasonable financial advisor would suggest. And gold acted perfectly when the financial crisis of 2008 hit as that hedge against instability. We didn't need it for about 25 years, from 1982, 83, all the way to 2004, 2005. Most of my career, gold traded between $300 and $500 U.S. and never got over those numbers or below. But once we started, we got into war in Iraq following 9-11 in Afghanistan, we started to run up debt. And then the Iraqi war went badly. Gold started to rise. And then when the housing crisis and the financial crisis hit behind that, gold took off. And it was needed as insurance for the rest of your money. So if you think of insurance, right, every year you buy housing insurance, you buy car insurance, you buy life insurance, you pay that premium, that premium goes away. The next year comes around, you have to pay it all over again. And what did you get for the premium that you already paid for the year before? If you didn't use it, you didn't need it, you got nothing back. Mm -hmm. But with gold, if you think of gold as an insurance policy for your other assets and you use 5 to 10% of your assets for gold or silver too as a hedge, you always get some of that, if not all of that or most of that premium back if you ever need to cash it in. It's still there as a valuable asset. Yeah. So, uh, so Jan, tell me about your business. Well, I'm in the physical precious metal sector. I've, uh, uh, I'm a old classic U.S. gold coin expert. So coins that were minted as currency in the '30s and earlier. I'm a, a national expert in those. We buy and sell them all the time. They're like buying an ounce of gold, but they're um, of a modern bullion coin, but they're much scarcer. So they offer leverage to the gold price through their scarcity and collectability. Uh, we also trade a lot of older European gold coins minted in the same era uh, that don't have the collector premium that U.S. gold coins have. And we're also modern bullion dealers. So we, we trade in modern gold 
silver, platinum, and palladium bullion items that are all mainstream, like uh, U.S. gold eagles or Canadian gold maple leaves or South African gold Krugerrand. So we make a competitive buy-sell market in modern bullion, classic U.S. gold coins, and classic European gold coins. Got it. And you guys uh, have been doing this for a long time. Yeah, I've been in the in the business since 1980. I started American Gold Exchange uh, in 1998. Uh, you know, I, I literally got my start in 1980 when times were just like in 2008. Interest rates were sky high, inflation was 18 uh, percent, and I was unhireable out of college. Except I ended up getting a job in a vault, counting, shipping, and weighing because I could be trusted. And I literally, yeah. if it was a restaurant, I started at the kitchen sink, <laughs> and then I learned how to cook and learn how to, to order and learn how to run the business. Uh, after, you know, 18, 19 years of working for other people and growing up the ladder, uh, I started my own business in 1998. So we're a small boutique-sized firm, but we're a national mail order firm. That's mm-hmm. what we do. Got it. Got it. So you've got, so you do with customers. You're based in uh, Arizona? No, no, no. We're in Austin, Austin. Texas. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm yeah, sorry so about that. Yeah, we're smack dab in the middle of the country on the southern side. Right, and you've got customers throughout the country, though, right? Yes, we, uh, we're a national mail-order dealer, uh, and we, we're, we're a smaller company, so our overhead is low. We make a very competitive buy-sell market in all the products I discussed. We stick with mainstream items. We don't – there's so many different choices now. If you want to buy gold, you can buy gold from Australia – China, Singapore, um, Austria. You know, we stick with what I call vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry for the most part, which are U.S. gold eagles, vanilla, Canadian maple leaves, chocolate, and South African Krugerrands as uh, strawberry. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. Well, you know, uh, American Gold Exchange uh, has been recommended by a lot of people, influential newsletter writers, um, uh, you know, you've got uh, is it Steve Ju- uh, Sugarood. Uh, Steve Sugarood has recommended us for yeah. over ten years. Um, uh-huh. We're we're lucky and uh, very grateful to have his endorsement. Yeah. Brian Lundine, uh, uh, who is uh, also uh, runs the New Orleans Investor Conference. Peter Schiff, who who's been on the show, and uh, you were recently on Robert Kiyosaki's show too, right? So. Um, yes, I taped a, I taped an episode of uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad radio show with Robert uh, about two weeks ago. Oh, That'll, great! great. It'll so, air this weekend, I think. Oh, okay. I guess he's uh, guess he's a little bit ahead of me here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. So we can uh, get in touch with you. Um, obviously, the so it's American Gold Exchange, and it's uh, the website is americgold.com. So that's A-M-E-R-G-O-L-D dot com. Uh, definitely check that out. Dana, is there anything else, any other resources that you have that we can uh, that we can get? Well, um, you know, our website uh, at Amergold is uh, very uh, information rich. All our pricing is transparent in real time. So we want our clients to be educated. Um, you know, I highly recommend... The newsletter writers that you've discussed, uh, Dr. Sugarood's True Wealth is a great financial-related newsletter. Uh, another uh, group of people that recommend us and I've known for years are the uh, Marianne and Pamela Aiden of the Aiden Forecast, who specifically put out a newsletter, uh, the Aiden Forecast, on a monthly basis with weekly updates, 
that track the commodity sector, currencies, and stocks. They're very, very good. Highly recommend them. Um, you know, there's a host of books, and the Internet is a wealth of information. Right. Uh, but and I, these are the primary people I would go to in the financial sector if you want to uh, get uh, further information on what's happening in the markets on a, in a real-time basis. Dana, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's been great. Buck, it's been wonderful chatting with you, and great to meet you at the New Orleans Investment Conference. Absolutely. Dana Samuelson, everyone. We'll be right back. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. So welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that uh, that discussion with Dana Samuelson. I think the topic of gold is terrifically important these days, whether or not you actually decide to buy it. I think it's really important that you understand it. And, you know, if you don't buy it and, and um, you know, the price goes up and the dollar continues to lose value and you don't kick yourself because you were ignorant, you kick yourself because you made the wrong decision, which is at least a, a better place to be in my humble opinion. Now, you might be wondering what I my personal perspective is on gold. Now, I don't classify myself as a gold bug. You know, I don't collect gold coins. I don't collect, um, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't pile up gold. You know, a lot of people do. I know Robert Kiyosaki is also a huge fan of gold. But I do have exposure to gold, either in the form of physical gold, and I do have some gold mining uh, exposure uh, in the Toronto Stock Exchange. But it's the total amount in my portfolio exposure to gold is about f- between 5 and 7%. Now, that's not to say that's what you should do, but I do think that there is some value here. And hopefully you have uh, at least learned that much from listening to Dana today. Uh, and make sure you check out his uh, his store if you're going to think about buying some because he is a real pro, uh, very good guy. And, you know, if you're going to buy gold, you should seriously consider him. Anyway, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Safe with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.